Where'd that come from? What is that? Oh, that's the other, that's the uh, show that was playing before this. Okay. Yeah, so that's, um, we've got this thing that runs, uh, when we're not here. So that there's no dead air because that's the most horrible uh, sin imaginable. So, you, so of course you hear a lot of it on Ruddy Mysterio. So, okay, we're recording. So let's get rid of the rap and uh, in with the Criswell. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Find a less uh, or a more inviting chair here. It's Ready Mysterio, so and as promised, we're here with our guest Barbara Harris. And uh, can you hear me, Barb? I hear you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am going to. Um, oh wait, let me turn. There we go. Everything's coming through one line this time, so it's kind of. Uh, there we go. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to give an introduction, and you stop me and say wrong if I say anything wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Barbara Harris, and I, I wrote this about three hours ago. Uh, you still own a graphics business, right? Correct, yes. Uh, Barbara Harris runs her own graphics business with her husband and is the president of the Morongo Mar- Mar- Basin Historical Society. Uh, from 2006 to 2009, she organized and hosted the Retro UFO Convention, um, in Landers, California, at the original site of UFO contactee George Van Tassel's Integratron. She's an expert on the history of the California high desert and actively promotes events and gatherings highlighting the unique people and events that have shaped the area. I asked Barbara to come on the show tonight to talk about Giant Rock, of course, a, a huge interest of mine, you know, as you li- if you listen to this show, where Van Tassel had his um, spacecraft conventions from the mid-1950s to 77, 1977, is that right, Barb? Around there, yeah. Yeah, I think he died in 1977, so um, I think the last one was earlier in the year before he actually passed away. Um, yeah, his, his wife took over after that. 
Yeah, Doris Van Tassel took over for for a bit. In fact, for the rest of her life, I think. But it kind of got less and less. Um, uh, what organized, well, uh, <laughs> large, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. Well, it it became a lot for her to handle as she was getting up in age, and then there were things with the family. So um, she put it on the market, and uh, was and there were people interested in purchasing it. Actually, people in line waiting to purchase it. So one one of the people interested in purchasing it wanted to turn it into a discotheque. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. Um, for people who don't know, which I don't know why they'd be listening to this show if they didn't know who George Van Tassel, the Integratron, Giant Rock, and all that is. Um, why uh, why don't you give a uh, kind of a short back on what people might know, and then we'll go back. And you told me some things a couple weeks on the ago on the phone, which amazed me about the history and what was accepted history about uh, Giant Rock in that area, and what you found by actually doing real research. Yes, it's well. I have a thirty year love affair with this area, and I'm actually from Pennsylvania. And when we moved out here, I I moved out here. One of the first dates that I had with my present husband was a trip out to Giant Rock. And for that period of time, we would go stand at the Integratron gates and would stand there and somebody and say, somebody, please let us in, let us in. And I did that. nobody was, um, I think Emil was the owner at that time. You know, you've heard of Emil, correct? Emil Canning. Yeah. And um, and we were having a difficult time getting on the property, but it was always a dream. And and we'd usually stop at the Tegatron, go out to Giant Rock, and we did that for close to 22 years. And finally, at um, one time when I started doing an online magazine, I got a call from a, an author in Arizona. And she calls me up and says, hey, Barb, do you ever hear this thing out in the desert called the Integratron? I'm going, oh, come on, 22 years I've been trying to get in there. And um, she had just come from a retreat, and there were new owners. And they bought it in February. I heard about it in April. And from that point on... What year was that? Oh, wow, that that has to be about 12 years ago now. So... Yeah, I I kind of forget all the years kind of run together out here in the desert. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, but made a relationship with the owners, and we would spend more time out here in the desert than we did in Orange County, where we ran our business and lived. And eventually, just picked up, had enough of sitting on freeways, and moved here to the to the valley, Yucca Valley. And um, and then when I got here. Then the fun really began because um, I thought, wow, this is all in my backyard now, and, and I really got it made. I could go to Giant Rock and Tegatron anytime I wanted. But all of a sudden, the secrets started piling up, and, and that's when the research really started. So I've actually been doing research on this area for probably close to 30 years. Why did you Why go did out you to the... To... I'm getting feedback here. Okay. Yes. What was your interest in the first place to go out the Integratron? I mean, I know mine was because of the UFO thing, and I went out there and I I met um, uh, Daniel Boone Van Tassel, and I gave him a little Christmas tree to give to Doris, but she still wouldn't come out because it was around Christmas of, I think, about 92 or 93 or something. 
exactly so sweet of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, but why were you interested? My my interest actually, I was a tag along. I you know I came from Pennsylvania. I I knew nothing about the desert. Now, my husband, when he was seven years old, he's he's now seven years older than me. Okay, and I'm not going to give away ages yet. But That's um, fine. when he was 17 years old, he would dirt bike ride out here in the desert. And one of the times he was riding down Giant Rock Road, and there was a, there was a spaceship convention called it on, called on out there, and he he called it a trekking convention. <laughs> and he was amazed that man, there were so many people out there, and and they continued to ride, and they rode down the road, and he actually met George, and. When he first met him, his first impression was, is, wow, this guy has spent way too much time in the desert. <laughs> However, he was, it caught his fascination, and it stuck with him for years. So he was 17 when that happened to him, wow. and, and he was 33 when I met him. So, and he rarely went to the desert in between that time. So um, for us... And being on one of our first dates, he just took a chance. He said, oh, do you want to go somewhere and really meet and try to find this place? He couldn't even remember where it was. And we threw some sleeping bags in the car, drove out to the desert, and the rest is history. <laughs> so uh, we just fell in love with the place. We, I became a desert rat. We were constantly coming out to the desert, wanted to know more about it, and um, and, and kept it kept coming. We would come... You know, four or five times a year on a Friday night, we'd be just sitting around doing nothing and say, hey, let's go out to Giant Rock. Uh-oh, you know? that's exactly what I do. You do the same thing. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's a calling, isn't it? Yes. It's really a calling. You have read Edward Abbey, haven't you? Yeah. It's yeah. Just, it's, it's one of those things that once you, once you get there and you feel it and you really get it, you, you can't stay away. Uh, it's It's... It's a fascinating phenomena, is what I'm going to call it, because I've seen it happen to so many people. Yeah, and can I ask you something about it? Sure can. Do you feel more comfortable when you have trees around you or when you can see for like 50, 80, 100 miles? I like to see distances. Yeah, me too. In, in fact, here's, <laughs> a, here's some, a really neat scenario. You that's, might, that's a desert you know. question. Yeah, and uh, the reason why... In, you might I get real claustrophobic in trees. I like yeah. trees. Yeah, I like too. being in the mountains. Uh-huh. But it's claustrophobic. And um, you know when we bought our house here in Yucca Valley, we found out the the prior owners. And the prior owner happened to be a sea captain. And he would take his big cargo ship and he sailed the Atlantic from you know the East Coast to Europe. And I, I'm curious. I'm going, wow, somebody who's on the sea and the water, why would they come to the desert? I mean, water people in the desert? So I did a little research on him, and I read some of his back diaries and logs. Yeah. And what, what brought him to the desert was the open spaces. And he compared the open spaces of the ocean to the open spaces of the desert. Right. It's, People don't think of that. They are very similar, except one's wet and one's dry. You know, yin and yang type of yeah. thing. Definitely. So, um, you so know, we, that's, that's one of the draws to here yeah. is, is just that big open view and big vastness that you have going. Well, maybe that's what drew the um, George Van Tassel and some of the contactees out there. Um, you, 
there's a um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was uh, giant rock because that's very important, obviously, in the history of the area. What we're talking about, George Van Tassel, the whole bit, and um, and you said right before the show here that you wanted to give sort of a background, kind of a um, prehistorical background to the whole area. Uh, before we, uh, well, we're basically, we're going to talk about the whole area, Yucca Valley, Joshua Tree, um, Landers area, where George Van Tassel lived, where he built his Integratron and, um, what led up to him being there. And I guess after that too, I mean, I I wanted to talk a little bit about what's happened after and the present owners and how you're involved and all that. But, um, maybe we ought to, um, start at the beginning here and, um, Talk you know, about the, found, the the very early history of uh, Giant Rock and how it got there. Maybe the geology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, see, that was that was my biggest um, obstacle to overcome because I started doing presentations. I as I acquired the knowledge of the area, Giant Rock, and in the Integratron, you know, it got so big. There was so much information that yeah. most presentations only want you to present for a half hour, an hour. So I would get into these presentations, and and people would be sitting there going, well, now what's the rest of the story? What's the rest of the story? Yeah. So I had to end up breaking the, the whole story down into like six or seven parts. And I always ask anybody, you know, what, what part do you want to start with? How do yeah. you want to hear it first? Sounds like you and, should write a book. Yeah, I, I'm working <laughs> on it. I'm, I think you should. I, Need help. I need help. I'll help so, you. Whatever you need. I'm really looking into a documentary on this, too, because as of last year, July of last year, what I discovered and what has been discovered is uh, a complete rewrite of the history. And um, I was just blown away completely. And um, I guess we're going to start, though, with the prehistoric. Yeah. And, and how that can kind of start off is just a little... A little blurb that I found just searching the uh, internet one night when I was working and doing my research. And I'm going to read this real quick because it goes, it was from the California Salton Sea. And it talks, mountains adjacent to the Salton Sea of Southern California have been the site of reports of subterranean rock slides and also legends concerning the ancient caves of the Aztecs, which some believe lie below the area. No big deal, right? No, not at all. I'm suddenly going, what? (laughs) Yeah. But guess where the source of this came from? It came from a source, Penny Harper, from the Salton Sea Naval Facility. (laughs) So, obviously, somebody... The naval facility. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> somebody is really interested in the in the area and their job. I guess. I wonder if she knows about the uh, the uh, the Bigfoot around there and the sunken treasure and all that other stuff we know about the Salton Sea. Yeah, you know, and and that that little blurb got me thinking the prehistoric, you know, and and so when I started doing some of the research, you know, you get into when the Spaniards were coming up the coast and. They would be sailing up from South America, and they had Aztec Indians. You got into Indian trades, um, slave trades, yep. things that you never thought of. And um, one of the the areas, you know, and, and how the stories go is the Salton Sea was up here. Then, you know, the Sea of Cortez went all the way up to where we are here in Giant Rock and Yucca Valley. And, right. of course, at some point, they all started receding. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, it went back and forth, I think, over thousands. That's nice and loud. Over thousands of years. At least that's what I've read. Or millions, yeah. actually. Yeah. Millions of years. They can and see the level on the mountains. But see, what really gets cool about that is it really validates the theories of the tunnels and the subterranean tunnels that many people report. And in, in one of, George, in one of um, Frank Kreitzer's writings, he talks about when he was digging out his home underneath the rock, he um, came across, he got down so far, and as he got to a certain point, he started seeing, he didn't call them crystals, he called them these blue vibrating reflections, and, and things were not the same type of rock and geology, and he just, and there were openings. And he figured in his... Um, Whitings, he, he figured he better stop digging because he was planning to make his home on top of this 25,000-ton boulder. And if there is an opening or a, a tunnel underneath it, it can easily collapse. So I eventually figured out that he was, he was describing something that would be similar to Mitchell's Caverns. And um, apparently there's a lot of those out here. And... Um, those, those are caverns down near, um, closer to Baker, uh, off the uh, 40, I believe, right? Yes, they are. Near, yeah, and near the uh, uh, Kelso Dunes. Yes, yes. And, um, and that, so, you know, you figure if they're there, we've had to have, we have to have those same type of subterranean tunnels here. And a good example of that is the Integratron. I'm jumping all over the place here, but it's fine. the Integratron is built on three rivers, or or there, or how it is, it's three combined rivers in the middle of it. So, or aquifers, as we refer to them out here, underground and rivers, underground water. Yep. And once that water dries up, what does it become? A cavern. And um, different people have. Different um, theories behind these caverns, though, I, I hear from um, a ufologists who believe that the UFO people use them to be transporting from one end of the state to the other, and, and then I hear conspiracy people talking about more about how the military uses them to transport from one to the other, but um, I don't know either way, but I can validate that there are subterranean tunnels out there somewhere <laughs> and I believe there are several of them close to where the giant rock sits so then that's so that's the part of the prehistoric you know and I could get into all more of the details and the actual mountain ranges and who came where and why they came and and who you know all the the Aztecs and Indians and Spaniards behind it but, but that's the that's the basics of the prehistoric um, oh, okay. and, and as the water receded, of course, all the tunnels are opened up. And uh, and I really, one of these days, my, my ultimate dream is really to have one of those machines that can go out there and and um, x-ray what's under the ground. Oh, you and mean uh, ground-penetrating radar? Yes, yes, yes. And I've actually had some old-timers from around this area take me out to different parts of Giant Rock and Giant Rock Airport and tell me where gold is hidden or where there is a tunnel under here. And if you dig under this area, you're going to find something. And then I would always look at them and go, okay, so where am I going to get the money to do that? Yeah. 
And uh, and then their first thing out of their mouth is, well, if you do do it, I get half of it because I told you where it was. So, so yeah, well, it, you they're, know. they're using using you to do their work. That's all. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 funny because um, instinctively I I know that they're they're out there and and from the research I did find with Frank and some other people, there are there. I think um, Bill Hamilton. Bill Hamilton did a lot of research in that area. Have you heard of his? Um, he spoke at one of the retro. Yes, it. I I used to know uh, Bill actually quite well. I used to go to uh, meetings that he had at the uh, at a uh, Denny's out here in L.A. for a while. Yeah, and um, he's been around so for he, a while. Yeah, and I'd like to get in touch with him again and see what you know what the latest is. I haven't I haven't seen him around or heard him or. You know, we always kind of keep track of everybody on Facebook or through the web. And um, so if anybody can get me in touch with him, I'd like to hear what he's up to these days. There's got to be one of the listeners can do that. Uh, I think he still lives in Los Angeles, as far as I know, in Southern California anyway. Yeah. So the next part of it is, is you know, after all the, the, the prehistoric stuff goes and the geology is set, and, oh, this was something, talking about the geology, you know, I've always wondered where the geology came from, and um, I learned something just recently from the National Park, because they have pretty much the Joshua Tree National Park, and they have pretty much the same geology, you know, like the big boulders that right. just show up and they're out there. The granite boulders, and, yeah. And what was told to me is how they actually were there is they came up. They were, they were, you know, they, they came from the bottom up. They have been there, and basically as the water receded, that, that's what was left at the bottom. Volcanic, you mean? Well, it's not volcanic. Oh, no, no not because they're, not, they're not volcanic rock. They're, um, what's that called, uh, 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 igneous, where it's it, made up of different things. Yes. And uh, and interesting though the the actual geology of the area is is different in different areas, and uh, we'll get into that a little later because I'll share a little hill that sits behind Giant Rock, and we call it Crystal Mountain. Yes, I've and, heard about that for many years, and and walked on it and everything, but I don't know the history yeah, of it. Yeah, it's it's completely different geology. It's it's actually a solid quartz mountain if you can say that, and there was no other mountains around it like it. Um, Now, Giant Rock itself is quartz, and um, part of that was the enticement. It it was considered the largest freestanding boulder in the world. It is seven stories tall, if you could imagine that, uh, 25,000 tons, and um, it's it basically covers 5,800 square feet. And one of the things with it was the Native Americans, they considered that ground to be very sacred and that area around there. And our, in, our Indian tribes around here, I don't know if you know this, but you know we really don't have a Native American tri- Indian tribe. Most of our Indian tribes up here have, are nomadic. And what that means is they kind of come and go. So in the in the summer they usually go up to Big Bear, and in the winter they go down more towards um, Yuma. Right. And uh, so, 
but we only really in this area from 17, 1700s to the 1800s, we only had four um, native people that we were dealing with in the, this area up around Yucca Valley. And that would be the Chimueve, the Serrano, the Mojave, and the Cahuilla. Mm-hmm. So they were the main ones who used giant rock, and they actually would use it together. And in the middle of their, you should say, like in spring and fall, they that would be part of their migrating, and they would come together at giant rock to have their healing party. I don't want to call it a party, but it, it was like a three-day ceremony. Do you know about that? No, I I had heard about it when I when I did a story on the rock uh, cracking open. There, uh-huh. I got a few hints about it, a few uh, little uh, stories about it from uh, I can't remember the name of the reporter at the um, uh, what's the local paper in Yucca Valley? Uh, High Desert Star. Yes, yeah, at the High Desert Star. She told me a little bit about it um, yeah. when I was doing that story, but I not in much detail, not in the detail that you're going into right now. Well, it even gets even more detailed because that's, you know, that they went on, what, 1700s to 1800s, and um, no white men ever participated in these ceremonies. And this rock was considered so sacred to them that at one point that only the shamans and the chiefs would stay there by the rock. The tribesmen would have to stay anywhere from one mile to three miles away from the rock. That's really a precious place for them, and they would conduct ceremonies and and have their halfway meeting. It would last for three days at a time, and all of a sudden, the white men came along, and there was a man named Charlie Ricci who owned and built a ranch where the Integratron now sits, and he became friends with the Native Americans, and he was the first white man to be allowed into these ceremonies. And that's how we know about them. And when was that? Him. When was that? That so, was in the, around 1887. Oh, okay. And that, Late 19th century. Yeah. And, and that's when um, Charlie homesteaded the area. And, um, and he would be part of this, these large, they, they called them seances. And their name for the rock was Big Stone or Big Rock. And... The, as they started to wind down and the white man started to encringe more onto the area, the, one of the last chiefs, I believe he was a Chimuibe or a Serrano, I, I'm still working on defining and getting more information about the natives uh, on, on Giant Rock, that um, many people don't know that there is a big petroglyph of a scorpion on Giant Rock. Have you ever seen that when you were out there? I'm embarrassed. No. You told no. me about it, and I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it, and I, I guess I don't know where to look. Yeah, and and I'm very cautious. Is Most people know now when they see Giant Rock or be by Giant Rock, they know we have a difficult time dealing with um, the graffiti and, yeah. and the destruction that goes out there. So, I'm very cautious in letting people know where the scorpion's at. Well, then I would rather you not reveal it on the air. Actually, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be an asshole and say, yeah, I'd rather not people know because I don't want it ruined. Yeah, it would really be. It, it's it's something, and unless somebody points it out to you, you won't see it 
right away because it is, you know, well, you're looking 19th century. You're looking at how many centuries already old and beaten in. And um, it's rather big. But it's, it's kind of a neat story why this chief put the scorpion there because the scorpion itself has a big meaning. It means that it's a he, he, for Native Americans, it's a healing place. It's a place of, of um, uh, the scorpion, you know, like the scorpion has its um, stinger, and one of the things that it wants people to do is to come there to just be healed, and, and it also wants to make the mark that by destroying it and everything, you know, it has that little stinger there that it's going to come back to get you if you don't treat it with respect. So, and one of the issues that we have now, there is a, a local man who who is still alive as he participated in those ceremonies. And I've tried to interview him uh, as one of the last Indian tribes who participated in these ceremonies. And he is, he will not talk to us because he's so disgusted and so mad at what has the white man has done to giant rock and um i'm still trying to convince him that it's all about education and the more we can share and teach and teach people about it um we can maybe stop it at some time so so wish me luck i'm going to still try to get get more information from the natives on how they lived and worked at giant rock yeah i that'd be great I, I, that's part of the history of that area that it's not really public i don't think and in, uh, it's it, it you know maybe more around joshua tree because that's where people visit but uh mm-hmm. not not in the area between there maybe all the way up to death valley that whole yeah. desert area is is pretty much forgotten by most people yeah let's see that that's see when most of the history is written or you read things on giant rock and the integratron it, it immediately jumps to either frank kreitzer or right to george van tassel and my curiosity came like, well, what happened before that? <laughs> you yeah. know, how did it, what, you know, there had to be something there. And after the first white man, Charlie Ritchie, you know, who came next? And that, that's the big one. Um, have you all heard, you know, you've heard of Frank Kreitzer, right? Of course, yeah, I've written about him. And I've written wrong, erroneous things about him, which you have corrected me on since. And uh, we will get into. Yeah. So, well, if you even go up, I, I continue to even get little excerpts from people who are publishing their books, and and when they send them to me, I just go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could get this out faster to people, because the big information is, is you know, you read that Frank Kreitzer was a German immigrant, that right. he served in the German Navy, and then he came to the desert because he had lung problems, he was a Nazi sympathizer, a spy, desert hermit, you know, all this stuff about him. Yeah. And uh, Where so did that he, come he, from? Yeah, and, and it's been the same stories for years and years and years. Well, Barbara, and, where did it come from? Do you know who started all these stories, or they just started by people who didn't like him or made local. up? A, who knows? I mean, did you ever find out who started these stories about him? Well, I... I learned about people who live in the desert, and um, one of the things that happens out here when you live in a small town is if, you know, you don't, it's when you don't understand something or you don't have a chance to know somebody or they can share their life with you, 
and mistrust builds up for one reason or another, and um, and stories get told. However, Frank Kreitzer was actually friends with Charlie Ricci and his family, so he would go have dinner at the at the Ricci's, and the Ricci's had a lot of suspicions about this man, but. You know, for some reason, nobody talked about it. And my first clue came is when we had our first retro UFO, I I was stunned because we had really great publicity. We had all kinds of things going for it. We had great speakers. We had a great place, the Integratron, advertising. And um, one week before the actual event of retro, we, I got a call from the county of San Bernardino saying, shut it down. And I go, what? <laughs> they said, shut it down. And nobody could give me a reason. And eventually I did get a reason from one of the little secretaries who was answering the phone. And her reason was, we don't want any more of that Van Tassel stuff going on out there. And At this I, late date. Pardon me? At this late date, in 2006, when you did the first one. Correct. They didn't want any more of that Van Tassel stuff going on? There wasn't really anything going on? Oh, but they were there when it was when it was going full bore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that made me very curious because we did have, we didn't, for all three of the um, uh, retros that we had, you we had um, attendance, but I was stunned not to see the attendance that we could have had. And there was interest, and there was a lot of fear. And at some point, I stepped back and I go, hey, I've got to go back to the beginning. And that's when I became involved with the historical society. And that's when I became deep into the actual research of the area and, and how people felt about Frank Kreitzer, how people felt about George Van Tassel, and how people felt about the Integratron. And then I was getting different stories about it, and I began to understand that it wasn't something very well embraced within the community. So um, the thing about Frank Kreitzer, he was always considered a spy. Nobody, t- Everybody thought because he had the last name Kreitzer that he was German. However, his last name Kreitzer is English. And he was born April 1886 in Basic City, Virginia. So he was never German. He was born in the United States. <laughs> and Just to let people reason, know, I'm sorry, Barbara, just to let people know, Frank Kreitzer was the man that was at Giant Rock and sort of, uh, not the caretaker, but he lived there before, um, immediately before George Van Tassel. Uh, and Van Tassel knew him, and that's maybe that's something people should know when they're listening, but... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That that really kind of threw me. It's like, oh, he wasn't German at all. That's the first well, time I heard that his, when you told me. Here's his basic story. Because he was actually born in um, Virginia, and, and he had eight siblings. Two of them died. And from the, the eight siblings in, living in Virginia, his family eventually migrated to Kansas. And while living in Kansas, one of the things that he got noted for, now you've got to remember this is during, you know, the, the 1800s, and there really wasn't no FBI and CIA at that time. However, there were government agencies that oversaw, you know, people that right. were sympathizers and stuff. 
and and it was it was way back even when he lived in Kansas he had, he got labeled as a Nazi sympathizer so the government was aware of him and they kind of watched his moves he while living in Kansas apparently he had a jilted lover and he put his car he packed up his car he packed up his dog and he drove off to California and that was the beginning of his relationship with George Van Tassel because his little nine well his Essex I don't know what year it was it I got a little picture of the car and um, it putted into Santa Monica where Glenn Payne's garage was and Glenn Payne was George Van Tassel's uncle ah. and yeah and um, when he got to that garage, his car had just about had enough. He couldn't make any more, and uh, they offered to um, to fix it and work with him. So uh, that that's how they all got to know each other. And Van Tassel really became friends with him and really liked him a lot. So, um, and one of the other things people don't know about him is he actually worked. At one of the, um, he was very interested in aviation, and he actually worked at, at I believe McDonnell Douglas, one of the air, um, you know, there was McDonnell Douglas and uh, Hughes and I don't know the other one right now, but he Lockheed um, he worked there for a while, and um, and at one point, so here he is, he's already he's his car's fixed. But he's been telling George and Glenn all these stories about what he wants to do. And so what George, Glenn, George and Glenn did is they grub-staked him. And most people don't know what grub-staking is. Do you have any idea? It's <laughs> a way to uh, get yourself some land out in the middle of nowhere. But why don't you describe it? Okay. Grub-staking out here is when you kind of like the idea that what the person's doing and you want a part of it. So they gave they gave um, Frank thirty dollars. They fixed his car for free. They packed him up with a bunch of supplies, and they sent him on his way. And the the thing was is wherever he got, and um, Glenn and George expected him to go to to up north to Oregon, and um, wherever he. He was going, and they thought that Frank was going someplace where he was going to do mining and prospecting. And who yeah. knows? George, you know, he could have hit the big one, and and um, and if he hit the big one, they wanted a percentage of it. So it took a year later, and finally George had got a letter from Frank, and he was surprised to know that he had ended up in um, this place out here in California. And at this big rock, and he was digging himself a home under this giant rock. So, and he he um he actually made a pretty decent place. It was a 880 square foot house underneath that rock. So, how would you like to live live under 25,000 tons and uh, and have an 800 and you know square foot house? I think it'd be uh, fun, it was, except the no windows. However, in the desert, it I bet it was nice and cool there in the summer. Actually, the way the way that um, Frank constructed it the first time, he had he had two windows, and it was able the there was a cross ventilation that happened, 
and it actually brought natural light to the to the room. Ah. And it and it kept the temperatures at at even temperatures all year long, all year long. So it was it was a great idea. And um, one of the things he did, this is really cool, because for years, like it says, over 20 years, I was going out there, and I always noticed these white strips going around the the rock. And anybody goes out there, if you go to the back side of it, where the the there's a a cement slab, and you'll notice there's these white rims that go there. And I'm going, oh man, how'd they get there? And it turned out that it was part of Frank's way of collecting water he made these gutters and oh. and he also used them as shelving so um it, it, he was very unique in how he how he lived out there and um he slept outside mostly and to this day there is a um a, um, a rod that sticks out of the one side of the rock yeah. And that rock was used by him. He put that, installed that, and, and that's where he had his um, sleeping sling or whatever they call hammock. Yeah. And he would sleep on that. So he hung so, his hammock from that? That's what that metal bar is for? Was uh-huh. for? Oh, that's, that's, never knew what that was. That's part of it. Yes. And here's, here's something really interesting. You know, they, you know, when you read the stuff in... Um, in the books and in things that have been written, you'll read that he was a recluse, a hermit. He didn't want to have anything to do with people. However, that I, I tend to challenge that because he was responsible for grading 64 miles of road out there. Plus, he was the guy who actually made Giant Rock Airport. And one of the things that he writes in his writings, he, he's kind of anal retentive, you know, that, that the <laughs> airport, he, it's, it's actually granite. And when he wanted it to be so smooth, he would sit out there with sandpaper and actually sand it to make it um, very smooth for airplanes to land. The entire cool. runway? Yeah. And he would do, and that's, that, that was one of the things he did. And if you see pictures of him, he always is dressed up. It's like he's always ready for a photo op. And I have to laugh. I go, does a hermit want to, you know, first of all, build 64 miles of road to the place where he lives. Right. Um, if he doesn't want people there. And, and then does he always want to dress up? He always had, you know, vests on and really nice clean clothes. And I have, because of the family, this is how I actually have come in contact with this information. And um, they were kind enough to share these stories with me and original writings from Frank and, you know, pictures that have never been published before. So there's photographs now in, in the collection of Frank digging under the rock that has just started, you know. And there's, wow. Yeah, pardon me? I said, "Wow, why did he dig that? Uh, if he didn't live under there, why did he dig that room? Dig those rooms under the rock for storage, or well, just to get did. out of the he sun? Did, or he did do some living. You know, there was living, but here in the desert, even for us, 
I, you know, we have the house that I'll say we live probably, you know, 45% of the time outside. Oh, right. You know, it's just that kind of environment in the high desert up here is, is just perfect for being outside. And one of the things that we, that in the presentations, you'll see that he's always working on his, on the rock. And what was funny about this is people always talk about him being a miner. Okay, and that's why he was out here. Right. However, he never mined. <laughs> he didn't do any mining. <laughs> what was he doing out there? He was building an airstrip. Why did he build an airstrip? He built an airstrip. And and then the other thing that he did was he invited the public to come and see his house. I mean, he if you go into some um, older, very old pictures and very old newspaper articles, you'll read things about, you know, PTA picnic with 300 in attendance. You'll have um, different things. He had Easter sunrise services out there. Wow. And and this was things that were being reported in the New York Times. So this guy had become very popular. Now, here's something that I've been looking to confirm because his 64 miles of road People, like today we have Google Earth, so we could just look up and we can see from above. But during that time, it was told to me by Morgan Ricci, that would be Charlie Ricci's, um, the relation, his son, and um, he knew Frank quite well because they all sat around the dinner table and talked. And um, he told me that if you looked at the time when Frank did his his grading from the air that you would see that they were it was graded in the form of a swastika the roads and out in the I desert have, have not got that confirmed though well you yes. it's funny because at the beginning of the show you said he wasn't a german sympathizer but but was the swastika because it was a religious symbol or because he was a, a, a nazi sympathizer that that's the question if it even was in the form of a swastika I'm, I'm having some difficulty. Um, there was a lot of breakup in your question. Oh, sorry. Can you repeat that? Uh, it would yeah. seem that, because uh, at the beginning of the show you said, oh, people thought he was a Nazi sympathizer. No, he wasn't. But if that's true, then either it's a religious symbol, which we know that a swastika is a religious symbol, ancient all over the world, yeah. or maybe he was a Nazi sympathizer if he was doing this in the uh, years leading up to World and during World War II. Yes. Is that is now, that have you now, been able to he, find that out? Now here's here's we've we've developed a few theories behind this because okay. you know that in in when he lived in Kansas we knew that he was considered a Nazi sympathizer so of course that's your first reaction and the the um, airstrip that he had out there um, it was not ever registered. So, and it was investigate, actually investigated um, by the FBI, or what was in charge at that time, and they, w- they actually came out, checked it, checked everything that he had, and I, in talking to some of the pilots, the old-timers that flew into the, the airport, yeah. they, were t- they tell me that they were told by Frank for many times, Never to come all the way down when they landed, they would never go all the way out 
to the rock area. Now, there was a big, you know, um, rock that was covered in white and had a windsock on it. Right. They were told to come down, and they were told to go to the middle and turn off to the right where there was a, uh, a series of hills. And this is what had, in, had the FBI kind of intrigued at the time because when they came on and investigated that particular area, they found that it was covered in camo. It was able to keep several airplanes hidden from uh, out of sight, and it was very well stocked to take care of pilots or anybody who would live there for long periods of time. So, you know, keep that theory in mind. And as part of the historical society, there's a young man now doing research on the Japanese camps. And I'm, I'm sure many of you are aware of Manzanar. And, yeah, the um, uh, internment camps. Happened. Internment camps during World War II where uh, Japanese camps. were sent. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what has happened is, is I think we've found different areas out here in the desert that were not um, where Japanese families were living. And, um, and we've often wondered who was supplying these families with information or food because they, were at, they had to be hidden in order to escape the internment camps. So there, there's, like I said, there's another research project going on through the Historical Society, that, and this um, person, and he's finding out that the, we knew of one, and, and last I heard, there was a possibility as many as five that he's uncovered. And um, so there, there's some connections there, and we might never know how that worked out. And you, you want to believe that, you know, in reading the background of Frank, it's very mysterious. And I, I can't come to any conclusions, but I can, can, I can share what I know and what has been documented. And one of the things that has, it reads here too, it goes, um, what has been, um, it baffled, there were baffled reports of single engine planes conducting quick rendezvous on the airfield with transit planes and black sedans leaving the airport under cover of darkness. According to local reports at the time, U.S. custom officials investigated Kreitzer in 1938 and found hangars camouflaged by giant canvas covers. Military intelligence agents would make long drives out to the rock but found nothing illegal. So it, it was, they knew, some, they had a feeling something was going on, but they couldn't get anything. So guess what happened? <laughs> there, was, there was actually a big break in the action because can you imagine this today that Frank and, and the, you know, the war was going on, all this stuff was going on, and what had happened, the draft changed in ni- July 1st, 1942. It changed from age 50 to age 56. So can you imagine being drafted at 56? Ridiculous. <laughs> they were losing too many okay. people. Yeah. Why, yeah. Why did they... Uh, can you I'm, imagine that? What was that? I said, I, no, I can't. It seems like they were losing too many people, and I didn't know the draft went that old at that time in the war. You're breaking up a lot. Oh, I sorry. I said I didn't time. know the draft was uh, 
included people that old that it actually relatively early in the war well the european war was older at that point i i can't even you're it's just a real big breakup i'm sorry do you, hear, do you hear that but anyway the story would go that frank was 54 years old so he he was eligible for the draft and um and that's this was part of his demise actually the, as the rest of the stories go, you, you've probably read the stories about how poor Frank, that there were these deputies that came out, threw, you know, tear gas under there and blew him to bits, and he didn't want to come out, and all these other stories. But that's not necessarily true, because one of the deputies, um, Simpson was his name, and he actually was a friend of Frank's. And he he was a, a deputy sheriff out of Riverside. However, he was he was also working with the government, and he was assigned to follow Frank and to follow Frank and what he was doing. And and Frank and him were actually kind of buddies. So um, one of the things that did happen that on one of the days they decided they were going to go out and they were going to help Frank. So Simpson, McCracken, and Prad, they drove out to the airstrip on July 24th, and they asked Frank if he would, you know, leave voluntarily with them and drive out to Banning so they can register him for the draft. Craziness. Somebody doesn't want us talking about the Integratron and Frank Kreitzer. Why is that? This is the first time this has ever happened. It's uh, it's just impossible to try and get in touch with Barb here. Well, might have to use the cell phone just to get just to get it working. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Well, it's the cell phone. Well, I'm gonna have to do the old-fashioned mic the cell phone thing. When I'm on the phone too much. Yesterday, I had in my office here. I have balances clipped to the top of my um, lines, yeah. and the balances came flying off at me. And this is on top of other things that have been happening. I know I'm going off topic, but you have to know this, so you know that if anything happens again, we it's interference with this ghost. Um, it, the lights go on and off at the house here. It walks around smoking cigarettes. Huh. It, it has... It'll, it'll make noises, and, and the cat, my poor cat, has been torment, being tormented. And yesterday, oh gosh, yesterday I was on the phone too long, and behind me, the cabinet with um, all my little knickknacks and, and, you know, pens and paper clips and stuff, and um, things started flying off the cabinet. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sitting on the phone being hit by things on my, on my shelving. <laughs> so we're, we're working on asking this thing to leave and um and it really depends a lot on our energy because when we we're under a lot of stress it seems to take it up on us <laughs> so and it's funny it really is and we've kind of we we don't really think much of it and we coexist together but it's kind of getting obnoxious now because it's it's gone from doing simple things like turning off and on oh the cool one was is the one day in the car is it attached to us? We're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, the radio goes on and plays a song that I haven't heard like in like ten years. Yeah. And we're thinking 
oh, no big deal, you know, what, you know, that could happen, and you're doing all the reasonable stuff, you know, <laughs> why this has happened, but then you go, well, the radio's on, and the next song will come on. No, it played the one song and turned it off, <laughs> so it, it's annoying, it's getting to be very annoying, and, um, and, and like I said, the lights go on and off, and things are going in the kitchen, it's turning on things, and so... I got to get rid of it soon. But we did. We've been saging and putting salt out and doing some different things, and it wants to stick around. I've had a lot of lot of friends pass away this past year. So. That's funny. I was just um, uh, on Facebook with somebody talking about uh, a lot of people that have passed away this year because apparently Bud Hopkins, the UFO abduction researcher, just died within the last, I guess, day or so here. Yes. I heard about that. Oh gosh, yeah, it's it's it, it got kind of scary there for a while because there was seems like a real mass exodus. You know, the everybody was just kind of heading out, and uh, and then then you know, remember that day uh, about a month ago that it was supposed to be the the last day. Um, you know, it, it was Armageddon and Jesus was coming to. You know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Away. Because one church had said and, it. Um, and it didn't happen, and and Surprise. we were walking around going, uh-uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus is here, you know, he just, all the other guys are gone, he, and he's walking around going, hey man, you know, they're all the, all those guys are gone now, now let's have some fun, <laughs> you know, now I'm here, so it was, you know, we're crossing the little lines of religion there, but, you know, you can't. You know, when you see the world the way it is today, people don't understand if they read history and really get into the sides of history. This has happened so many times. It, it's just, it's gone on and on. It's it, just a different, same thing, different century, you know, you know. And volcanoes are blowing up. They blew up before, you know. Uh, earthquakes have happened before. Earth globing warming has happened before, so. You know, it's just we're all on the same treadmill, it seems, doesn't it? So, yeah. It's, can, can you hear me all right now? I don't now? know where I left off with Frank. You left what, off with Frank. Can you I, hear me okay now? Yeah. Okay. Fine. Let me keep the... I've got to put the phone where, one, it's mic'd well, and two, you can also hear me at the same time. Okay. Okay, I think uh, I think that should work. There we go. Yeah, you were talking about Frank Kreitzer, and um, I, I, when you couldn't hear my uh, hear me for a while, I asked why would he build an airport out there? Yeah, at Giant well, Rock. he actually was an airplane buff, and he did work with Donald Douglas for a while when he was out here. He also just he in some of his writings that the family has shared with me, the. A very interesting thing arose from it. He, in one of them, he talks about in a creation he sees for the future that there will someday be airplanes that will have these green beams that shoot off of them, and these green beams will be able to affect or take down other aircraft. And, and he had a he had a real fascination with um, technology uh-huh. and. Little did he know that I think in some of these writings that he does have, he is talking about lasers. Um, George Van Tassel, in Van Tassel's writings, he'll talk about things that that um, Frank had actual formulas for Teflon before Teflon was invented. 
honesty also, um, this is an interesting subject because in a lot of things you read about Frank, they, people tell you that, oh, his radio, that radio that he had, it was just a receiver. But there's in his writings, he talks about how he rigged it to also be to send messages. And he was now able to communicate to South America, Europe, and Canada. And, and he talks about the antenna that he had to put up. So many of the things that people have assumed are, are uh, you know, different. They're actually in Frank's handwriting of, of what he had was accomplishing and doing at Giant Rock. And um, one of the things that people would have a would be surprised to know is he was he was really close to his family. He really wanted these letters talk about you know begging his family to come out and visit him and you know please dad you know I haven't heard from you in two years and you know come on out I, I so many people are flying and that was the thing the people that were coming there were bringing their aircraft they were flying in because you know again traveling in the desert wasn't always that great in the you know 40s and 50s and the the cars weren't set up with air conditioning so you know what better way if you had an aircraft or you had a plane you had a place to fly and he had it set up where he had visitors and and he would you know serve them and take care of them and put them up overnight so it was a pretty good thing he had going out there and um and he wasn't so much of a hermit and the big thing and this is one thing Van Tassel also mentioned that he got annoyed with people because he had such a a high level of intelligence that he was annoyed with people that weren't of the same yeah. um, you know intelligent level. Well, it's not so, like that hasn't you know, been heard I, of. Yeah. I guess that's where some rumors would start up, and people would get not get along. And he also had a reputation of really. Um, like, yeah, I don't know the right word, but, you know, sponging off of his neighbors. And the Ricci's were very much part of that. Um, one of the, the big stories, I, I think I told you this one not too long ago, and this was a big one, because you got to remember the, the Morgan Ranch, the Ricci Ranch is where the Integratron is now. And yeah, it's on the road named after them. The giant rock. And that was only three miles from the ranch. So these airplanes would come in, and they'd come and go, and people were always coming and going. And Morgan told me that one of these nights there was an airplane that landed, and or they heard it coming in, and it didn't sound like one of the normal aircraft that they normally heard. And it alerted his father to to kind of check it out. So one of the things his father did was hop in the car, and he drove down into Yucca Valley, which was about 17 miles into town, to the, the Civic Air Patrol, which he was part of at the time, to report this this plane that was coming into Giant Rock. He just felt it was something odd. There was some, something real about it. And so the Civil Air Patrol in Yucca Valley notified whoever they notify, and eventually... Um, they caught up with this plane, and they caught up with it over Blythe, and this is all in documented newspaper articles, that there was a plane brought down in Blythe by the Civic Air Patrol, and when they brought it down, 
there was a Japanese pilot in the plane. It was loaded with dynamite, and and it had maps for Hoover Dam. So the thing they can't prove is, did that particular plane land at Giant Rock? Did he get refueled at Giant Rock? Was that his stopping ground before he went off to Hoover Dam? So these are all still mysteries that need to be uncovered. So what you're saying here, if just to make this clear, that Frank Kreitzer, who had this airstrip, because he was kind of an aviation buff, may yes, have had absolutely. a Japanese national, not not a Japanese-American, but a Japanese national, who was a pilot um, who, were, who was caught flying to try and blow up the Hoover Dam, and he may have stopped at uh, Giant Rock Airport in 1940, what was it, 42, 43, something like that? Yeah, it was during World War II, you know, and, and I believe at the particular date, I don't have it in front of me, but it was very shortly after the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Oh, yeah, it must so, have been. Uh, I think most people were really just on edge with everything, and um, this particular um, aircraft was in Blythe, so... Um, but there was never again. The FBI could never get any proof on on Frank. So this was the the big break that they were waiting for is when the draft age changed from age fifty to age fifty six. Right? <laughs> Can you imagine how you know, being fifty six years old and being drafted? Uh, yeah. That's like crazy. And Frank at the time was fifty four. So what had happened was three deputies, which happened to be his friends out of Riverside. They drove out to the airstrip on July 24th, and they asked Frank to leave with them to go Giant Rock. They wanted to take him voluntarily into Banning to register for the draft. Right. And um, Frank declined. He told the deputies, um, you know, he had to go to the bathroom. And he walked into his little 10 by 10 bathroom to get a hat, and when he came back out, he was holding a flashlight battery to a wire that was dangling off his binoculars case, and he held another wire running along the wall, and and of course, when he touched the two wires together, it went boom, <laughs> and um, Frank was blown into bits all over the place, and one of the one of the rib cages, his rib cage actually pierced one of the sheriffs and one of the sheriffs was injured quite badly and nobody really expected that and pretty noisy why would he do such a thing had been shared with me from the family was that frank was a little paranoid yeah i guess so i was going to say why would he do such a thing he sounds like a gregarious person the way you paint him and happy to be around people you think that something like this that he would just say ah screw you guys and and either run away or you know yeah lock himself up or whatever family told me in the letters that he actually walked around with um dynamite around his waist or these binoculars that they talked about that he had on his neck so um he had you know so he had secrets he had things that he was he wasn't telling anybody but um, if you, if, I'd like to share this with your listeners because yeah. this was kind of funny because when the family got notified of his death, they spelled his name wrong for one thing. They spelled with a K. So when you ever see 
Chrysler with a K, that's wrong. It's Chrysler with a C. Mm-hmm. And, and it was to Kansas where the family was residing. And it reads, Frank Chrysler took his own life by blowing himself to pieces, <laughs> was, <laughs> was being questioned by deputy sheriffs regarding his failure to register for service when he touched off as an electric charge body at Wilson Mortuary in Victorville awaiting for disposition. So, and the interesting thing is, Frank is buried in Victorville, so you can still go visit his grave if you're interested. Yeah, I'm, I'm out there all the so time. I think, I think that would be a fun field trip for historical society, don't you think? I think so. I'm out there all the time, actually, out, out at uh, El Mirage, which is uh, right, right near uh, Victorville, and I drive by it on the way back. Do, do you happen to know which um, cemetery it is? I don't. I ha- you know, after I became president, my life and my research has, has almost come to a screeching halt because you take care of business. And um, one of the, the situations I have going right now is I'd love to get some of this stuff published and the photos and the letters and get this out and let people know the real story. Um, but like it says, I'm in the situation where I'm looking for help and, um, and would like to get that out there. And uh, the, the family, the Kreitzers, they have wanted to correct the history and um, they would like to see some of this stuff, you know, worked out because um, it, it, they kind of laugh about it. They actually visited 29 Palms a few years back. That's how this all kind of started. Oh, okay. And, uh, and one thing led to another, to another, to another, and, and I was fortunate enough to talk to them and, and get some of their background and their history. So, and and here's, the, here's the coolest thing of all. Because you think of Frank Kreitzer, this little guy who just happened to wander into the desert. He meets George Van Tassel at a garage in Santa Monica. They become friends. And see, during this whole time that Frank lived out there, Frank George would drive out there. He was out there every weekend. Uh, there was times that, you know, the family would go out. George loved the desert. That was the cool thing. This is where the part where I'm going to get into more of the George Van Tassel side. Yeah, I was about to push you into it. The whole story of Giant Rock and the Integratron could have never happened if this, the lives of these two men didn't intertwine at some time. Yeah. And, um, and when you read the, the backgrounds of things, it's funny because George actually, I think, played a little bit off of, of the technology and the, the interests of, of Frank. Because one of the things Frank, Frank didn't do is he was a squatter. He never registered any of that land out there. So when he actually died, the family thought that they owned land out there, and they went to go find it and, you know, claim it as part of the estate. And needless to say, nothing. He he just lived there. He just moved in. So when, after Frank died, the land was open for George to just move in and homestead and, and claim it, and he took the initiative to make Giant Rock Airport, Giant Rock Airport, and get it registered with the FAA. So, but 
Frank, you know, George Van Tassel, this is, with some things people might not know about him, this was, this was really cool, too, going into some of his background. Yeah. Because knowing that Frank was born in Virginia, you know, George was born in Jefferson, Ohio. And in his story goes that he saves, at age 17, he saved $300 and made his way to Chicago where he went to airplane school. And um, and then after the stock market crashed, um, he went to California, and that's where he worked at his uncle's garage and got married to Ava. And it's not Eva, it's Eva, Eva. I just talked to her, the granddaughter recently, oh. and um, she asked me to keep her name correct. Um, she was a very lovable lady, from what I hear. So I don't know. In some of your research, what have you, you know, the things that you might have found out about Ava? And her background, I, I, didn't, I can't find much on her. I can't either. All that I knew about was Doris, and I knew that it was his second wife, and I knew that a lot of people kind of disapproved of the marriage because they thought it was a little quick after his first wife died. Yeah. It was just, um, you know, it's one of those things. Eva was very loved, and um, I... I I don't have much information on her or anything. And even going back to Daniel and, and Matthew and some of the family, um, they're very, they, they've been very um, limited on the amount of information they do give out. And I understand why. I, I had a I had a conversation with one of the, one of the, the George's daughters. And um, I just wanted to know her side of the story. Yeah. Um, a, a child living uh-huh. out there and how it was for her. You know, you know, you figure you have kids that are living out there and they have to, to wander like three or four miles just in to get a bus to drive 45 minutes to go to school every day and in what her life was like. But she was very skeptical with the whole thing. She, she sounded very fed up with people taking information and then you know, moving it and rearranging it to fit their their needs. And then I could understand it quite, you know, talking to her about it um, and some of the bitterness. The one thing that did come across when talking with her is you could tell that she did have a lot of love for her father and, and, and it was a tight-knit family. So, um, but the interesting thing, here's an interesting thing about George's background because you think he has all this background in, in aerospace and he's a real brainiac and he has this all together. But his background goes is that he interviewed and worked at, at Douglas Aircraft in 1941. Mm-hmm. That same year, he switched to Howard Hughes to work on experimental aircraft. And basically, he was just an inspector. So he held a job for less than a year and got another job in the same year, and then in 1944, he switched to Lockheed, and and he became in charge of modifying aircraft. So, um, so 1941 to 1944, he worked at all three of the aircraft, um, you know, businesses that were in the area, and and he and his love was the desert. It, it like we went to. In, in the beginning, how when you come out here, you either love it or you hate it. Yeah. And and George fell in love with it. And the neat thing that he ended up doing is he, in 1947, they gave up city life, and he moved his family out to Giant Rock. 
so so he moved Eva and his three daughters uh, to Giant Rock, and they became. He redug out the underneath it. His his little area under the rock was only about four hundred square, like four forty four hundred square feet. So it was a little smaller. And from what one of the daughters had mentioned to me, they didn't really live under the rock. They used it more for a library or channeling area. And um, they lived on the outside of the rock, and they slept outside a lot when the weather would let it. And they had outside area, they had outside buildings and trailers that they would they would sleep in. Oh, I see. So it, it's you know that that what gets me excited about all this and why I get really passionate is you got to give these people a lot of credit because. You know, you come out to the desert and you think, you know, we have the creature comforts of air conditioning and, you know, running water and just life easy. And there was no water out there. They had a they had to have their water trucked in and just living in the different environments of the desert is, is difficult. So the spirit, pioneering spirit was really got them there. Got, Did they? You know, have... It was part of just living there. So that he and just wanted to move out it, there. That was it. It wasn't. There wasn't any specific reason, or because the giant rock property was there, and he he wanted to do something with that. That might have been part of it too, I guess. Yeah. Well, in one of the documents that I read, I haven't, and I I asked. I had several documents read that he actually purchased the land or, or homesteaded the land. You know, however they did at the time, and he there were quite, I think, 40 acres, and and he eventually wanted to make it into a dude ranch and right. actually put up hotels, at like, a, you know, like little cabins and things like that, because at that time, the, the city of Landers actually had a, a city plan, layout plan, where there were hotels. It was supposed to be like the mini Palm Springs. It, it had attracted quite a few movie stars, and it was the place that was going to happen. It was going to be the place. However, one of the things that George found out very quickly was, you know, not having water out there made a difference. So whatever happened between that period and, and the period where he was having his dreams, um, this is where it becomes real interesting because he tapped into something. He had the rock itself you know, from prehistoric times to fantastical times, it, it it is definitely a a vortex. It has something there, and it draws you in. And it has, I think, a lot. This is personal experience for sensitives and people who are open to it. They can get a lot from that area. I mean, energetically wise, and and um, and then the fascination with the history. So for me, it, it just the natural step would be I, the curiosity of what actually happened to George. Why all of a sudden did he start having these dreams, and and why did he become? Where did the UFOs come from? So I I got real interested in this this side of his life, and um, that side became. You know, the part where I think most people read about now that 
when he had his his conventions out there, how five or ten thousand people might show up um, and be sitting over the hill, and you watch the growth in the in the photograph over the years, and you watch how they went from a six stool, um, come on in the in that the restaurant that he built for his wife and she served the hamburgers and apple pie. Yeah. And one of their favorite clients were was um, Howard Hughes, where Howard Hughes would fly his plane in to get a piece of Eva's apple pie. <laughs> and uh, and then the the sixth band, you know, went to a bigger restaurant and went to an office and and um, you you would know. Have you talked to many people that ha- had been to the restaurant before it was destroyed or taken oh, down in the eighties? Only Bob Short. Bob Short. Yeah. And for a very long time, one of the things that I had, um, I was confused because people I had take people out there on tours, and they would tell me this is where the restaurant was. And then Bob would tell me, no, this is where the restaurant was. And I ended up finding that it was actually built on one side when it started and ended up on the other side as it grew. Oh, okay, because there's um, a picture. An old photograph, what's really cool, is there was actually a lot of green growth out there. There were trees. They planted trees and bougainvilleas. And and this is the exciting part, because when you... Take out the UFO side of it, you, you come to see that there was a family living out there. And there were people that were coming out to get this experience. There was something, and you got to think of what George was doing at that time, too, you know, and the rest of the contactees, because, you know, you got the war going on, you got the investigations, and, and he's he's doing this stuff that's only like five miles from the biggest marine base in the world. So he was obviously being monitored and being watched. And if you've ever read his um, FBI file, have you ever been able to get into that and check his FBI file? I think I might have it, but I've never seen that much of it. Yeah. But I know well, all the contactees had some... Uh, surveillance on them because they were saying dangerous things. They were talking about things that sounded like communism. Yes, very much so. And the the big thing was is you figure, you know, how the story goes that he would have dreams. And the one night he would have he had a dream that um, he was visited by the Venusians. And I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details. People can read this part online. And But basically what they told him was that, you know, you humans, you're, you're doing okay. You're, you're coming along with a species. It's, it's a slow process. But it seems like when you finally get to an age where you finally get it, you die. So, you know, they wanted to help out. And they wanted to give him some help in developing technology that would help extend the human species life life expectancy. So that's that's how the the Integratron was born. But you need money to do that. <laughs> so so George Hugo yeah, came up with the you know College of Universal Wisdom, and then he would publish a newsletter 
and he would have these conventions where the contactees would come out and talk. And um, now, here's some fun stuff I'm going to share with you that probably not many people know about. But have you have you seen the picture of the car? It was on in Life Magazine. There's a picture of a car on top of the rock. I haven't seen that picture, no. no. Not that one. I've seen well, the picture in front of the come on in. One. And in, uh, what had happened is there's some local guys, and this is where historical societies come in really handy, because <laughs> you can get into oral histories of the locals and what how their perspectives of the whole thing are. And um, there was this one guy out here, his name was Dan, and he, he, and he was a young guy. And they didn't have a whole lot to do, and they took that car, and um, they they had a, what was this, um, it was a Crosley, a small Crosley, and, and I, I don't know much about cars, but it was, um, they kind of took the motor and everything out of it, and they wedged it to the top of the rock, and it became a really world-famous photograph that you could even still see in Life magazine. Um, it's there, and it, it's really cool. So, you know, if anybody gets a chance, it's an October 1951 issue, and um, and it's kind of neat to look at. And uh, and that's what the kids around here did for fun. And one of the other things they did for fun, they there is a photograph that. Many people, and even some of the contactees to this day, will publish. And it is a photograph of a, a cloud over giant rock. And oh, yeah. you'll, you'll see people running. And I've seen two different photographs, people running to it and people running away from it. And when I joined the Historical Society, this was a really funny story because um, Dan... And some of his buddies, they, that photo, what happened was, is they went into town, and they, they were just kind of hanging out. They didn't have anything to do. So they went and got a case of dynamite. And he laughs, and in his, in his history, he talks about how, yeah, how can you get a case of dynamite? Just go down go down to your local Home Depot and buy a case of dynamite these days. You know? And they yeah, bought yeah. an eight-foot weather balloon at the Army Place surplus store and a tank of helium. So there's no way. Can you imagine nowadays trying to just go down the road and pick that stuff up? <laughs> but what they did is they put that all together, and, uh, and at one of, the, one of the conventions, and at the perfect timing, they lifted it off, and it blew up. And that cloud, not saying that particular one, but I think the one where people are running away because it made a big boom, a big sound, and and uh, made a big cloud up over the rock. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you seen that one? I've seen that one. It looks like, I thought it was some sort of a lenticular cloud, it looks like. Yeah, but it was, it's too close. It's just really close to the, to the rock. And it actually is just... Um, dynamite and helium going off <laughs> and this is the kind of stuff that kids were doing out here and um, according to Dan who was just a kid at the time he reported that you know Van Tassel kind of knew that they were doing this and and when it did happen he ran to the, his stage and, and made a big thing about it saying you know the, the, the people are coming you know get ready and 
so he he did play off of that a little bit, but um, and I just found it amusing because for me historically, you know what the kids here did, and um, but then you have to validate the work and the technology and the other stuff that you know Van Tassel also worked on and the building of the Integratron is one of those so you've been there haven't you you've been out to the Integratron a few times yes well you you gave me the uh, wonderful opportunity to speak there twice once outside and once inside oh and I just that, that place is just like also the love of my life you know I it's hard to tell people that how you can become so attached to a rock in a in an Integratron but there's something about that energy vortex. Um, a funny thing, this is, this is something most recently I found out. People who know about ley lines and talk about ley lines, that one of the things, the Integratron, Giant Rock, and the Great Pyramid of Giza are all on the same ley line. And most recently I found out that Yucca Valley and that area between Yucca Valley and the Integratron are all based on the 33rd parallel. And and I don't know if you've ever heard of the 33rd parallel. We, I've never heard of it. Yes, we talk so about it a lot on this show. I went online and I did some research and I found out that that little parallel is very interesting when it comes to worldwide mysteries. Um, it's connected to... One of the most UFO sightings, they're always on the 33rd parallel. Um, it also has a lot to do with um, just the most mysteries have occurred on the 33rd parallel. It has um, different things with uh, the Knight Templar that have happened on the 33rd parallel. And, and it, it's just interesting for me to know that I live in an area that is based between and, and on the 33rd parallel because, you know, we're noted a lot for our UFO sightings out here. <laughs> and um, and it's funny because when people do come out, that's one of the first questions they always ask. They always ask, did you see, have you seen a UFO out here? Have you seen it? And um, I had some weird things happen, though, out here. And I think one of my weirdest experiences at Giant Rock was with a birthday, and it was many years ago. I, I know I can't say many years ago, probably about eight or nine years ago. And my birthday happened to have a full moon eclipse on it. And um, we, a bunch of us all went out there. And I was five, no, I said a bunch, five of us. And we went out with a bottle of tequila and a birthday cake. <laughs> so we're sitting there, and we enjoyed the evening at at Giant Rock. That was just so cool. You know, you're sitting there, there's an eclipse going on, and part of the group gets up and they leave. And we go to our truck, and our truck was only about a month old. It wasn't very, it was a brand new truck. And we go to start it, and it wouldn't start. The battery was completely dead. So it was my husband and I and another another girlfriend of ours who was there. And um, the sweet part was, is so I flip open my phone, and I, I started, you know, you flip it open, I looked at the time, and it said 11.20. 
So I figured, ah, oh, you know, it's 11.20, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I called the Integratron. They came on. They jumped the battery. And when the battery came on, the clock in the car said it was like 1.20, somewhere around there, 1.21 or something. And and I thought to myself, that's no big deal. That, you know, when the battery gets turned off, the time gets changed. So at the time, we live about 17 miles from Giant Rock. And we got home, and I walked into the kitchen, and Rob walked into the bedroom, and we were almost at the same time when, and the phone rang almost at the same time. And we all looked at the clock, and we went, well, what time does it say in the kitchen? <laughs> If it was in the kitchen, it was 11.20. So somewhere along that line, we lost some time that we don't know about. Ah. <laughs> so have no recollection of it whatsoever. Well, and don't go get, don't go get uh, had, had hypnotized. So, so, you know, there are weird things that happen out there. That, that, was, that was one of my own personal experiences. So... Did you yeah. you said uh, earlier that when that explosion went off, Van Tassel knew it was an explosion, but he decided to play it up. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Wh- what kind of light does that cast on the rest of his claims and things like? What do you think of Van Tassel? What What do you think of his claims and what do you think he was doing? And why did he do what he did? I mean, I'd like to know from somebody that's very invested in the history of the area and knows a lot of people there because usually you just hear it in news report i mean in uh, magazine articles or read it online by some anonymous person that probably just uh you know heard it from a heard it from a you know or read it somewhere what what do you think van tassel was doing out there my personal um opinion of it is is he was trying to make a business he was trying to enlighten he was a very religious man um, he had a lot of beliefs in, in um, I, I don't want to call it supernatural, in, in spiritual um, sides of, of the world. And I think at that time, that's when the spirituality of consciousness was trying to expand. So I know he had a big interest in that. But on the other hand, like many of us, we... We would all try to survive. He had a family to raise. He had to put him through school. He, he was trying to, to build a big project. And um, many of the people out here, I can't say many, there, there was, he wasn't looked upon very favorably out here. And, and then there were groups that looked upon him very favorably, believed everything he was saying, supported his, his whole project. And a very interesting thing happened when the girls um, took over the Integratron and they opened the gates. It seemed like they, the people around this area were very fearful in letting other people know that they had an interest in, in spirituality or the UFO phenomena or any kind of, you know, um, you know, super paranormal activity and people would not come out and say they they wanted to be part of it or they knew about it or they they were there and and it was only after a while after the girls had opened up the gate and started in opening and the public started coming in and got comfortable with it did the the local people 
start bringing their material. And this is where the girls in the historical society have started to develop the collection and started to develop the the actual history of what had happened out there um, because people were afraid. There was so much fear. We didn't know where it was coming from, but they were really afraid to let people know that what was happening out there. And and that's when the collection, people would come out with the proceedings or photos and tapes and, and maps, and, and, and they were willing to tell their stories. So, and the other side of it is, if you ever read or got interested in the FBI file, it's, it's very sad in some ways. A lot of it is crossed out. However, the FBI doesn't look upon the family very favorably. And um, they say some very cruel things in the actual report. But yeah, I'm remembering some of that. One of the things that I do know locally, and I and I had this conversation with Morgan, who's still alive, and and I asked him because I had always heard there was a a friction, a um, kind of a feud that kind of went on between Van Tassel and the Ricci's. Because you got to imagine the Ricci's still owned a lot of the land over by the, the Integratron area. And one of the things that basically happened is I asked Morgan one time that, you know, what were you fighting about? What was the feud about? You know, I always heard it was about mining and the mines and who was going to get mining rights because there was a lot of that going on out here. And Morgan laughed at me and he goes, mining? He just got to be kidding. Everything out here was about water, water rights. And, and I think that was the big accomplishment from jo- for George to actually purchase that land from the Ricci's that had the, um, the, the three aquifers on it. That was, that was his, you know, I, I think the real claim to fame because that's where the real vortex really exists. And um, that has been really scientifically proved to be... Um, true, you know, since the girls, the, the, the Carl sisters owning it and have opened it to the public, yeah. you know, many scientists have come to the Integratron and they, they want to prove it, they want to turn it on, they want to do all kinds of stuff, and, um, and it's been proved over and over again that it really does sit on a, a geomagnetic um, vortex. Uh, one, of the, one of the different stories is, is how um, a scientist came out and wanted to measure the magnetic um, measure the magnetic forces of the the, the vortex, and uh, she rented the place for a while, and and they were supposed to turn off the the main switchboards, and the girls ended up turning off the main switch, and um, and the the person the scientist up top had all her equipment hooked up. And um, she was real frustrated. She came down and she asked Joanne and and like, I, I can you please check that? You know, you're you're. Uh, I asked you to kind of turn off the electric. Can you do that for me? And she was not real happy about it. But Joanne kind of looked at her funny and says, "It is off." And all of her equipment upstairs was was registering the magnetic field of the integratron. So it's kind of kind of fun it's kind of it's kind of fun to watch people when they go there so and uh and then they do the and the biggest thing that's happened 
And you get so many scientists and you get people that are interested in turning it back on and doing and fulfilling George Van Tassel's dream because he died before he ever got to turn it on. He was in within weeks of turning it on and he had a heart attack in Santa Ana or someplace and that has another whole controversy because people read in conspiracy theories because by the time they when they got to George and then they got back to the Integratron to get his original um, documents and all his plans they were all gone and they've never resurfaced so you know who are who has them where are they and and the technology today would be so different even if they were to go turn it on um, but George George saw something he really was um, by putting it there and working with geomagnetic energy that's you got to figure that was 50, 60 years ago, and that's what we're using today and in how we're healing our bodies and things that we do do. So, kind of interesting. I, I, I'm really fascinated with the whole, you know, combining the history, the facts, and and looking at these people, and, and I've kind of learned that these are people. These were actual people and families that lived there. So uh, I don't know if I answered your original question and what I thought. But well, yeah, I think you did. George thought what he was doing was for the betterment of mankind. And whatever so, he had to say or um, do to, to do that was okay. Yeah. And, and I, I think his intentions were of... of good intentions and um, that again what I try to teach people and I remind them that they were families they were people just like us trying to survive and raising raising girls going to school and one of the girls was actually you know uh, I guess uh, prom queen or princess of turtle days one of the times <laughs> you know, so they were they were very much involved in the community um, it's just that some people really developed a distaste, and it could be for religious reasons. You know, you living in a small community, and it could be because they were just different, and they lived under or they made their residence, you know, at a giant rock out of the middle of <laughs> nowhere. But one of the things that keeps coming back to me is just the the county when I wanted to do the retro and and George was able to bring five or ten thousand people out to that rock for conventions to listen to people speak. So he had the charisma and and to have the county tell you that no, you're not going that way and um, you're not gonna do that. So and now it's becoming even more difficult because the space is becoming smaller and smaller because recently the Marine Base, the 29 Marine Marine Base, has wanted, wanted to expand. And one of the areas they were planning to expand on is over to the Giant Rock area and Johnson Valley. And, and um, right now people are being actually cited when they go off-roading because uh, the, ba- the base has gone 
you know, closer and closer into that area. And especially for a, people who fly and still use giant rocks, they might not know they're flying into um, 29 Palms airspace. And, uh, or they might not know that they're driving on the marine base because it's not very well marked. But we just recently have been going through just trying to save, you know, the, the public lands that are out here. So, so one of these days when you're flying your your glider out there, uh, you need to be careful. <laughs> like oh, no. Well, I, ch- I actually checked the airspace when I was trying to launch out there, which somehow I've not been able to do in about five tries. Uh, basically, once was you know three times was wind, once was a bad launch, and once was a brake line wrapped up, which I didn't want to fly that way. So it's been, I, I don't know what's keeping me from doing it there, but the airspace and the marine airbase uh, property starts right near, and I'm sure you know that right near Giant Rock, just to the northwest of it. Oh yeah, uh, just yeah. at the probably right at the top of that hill. So I was I had to stay out of that airspace if I ever actually launch. But you're saying they're trying to expand even further out, out towards, that would leave almost no room at all, and you couldn't, nobody could go to Giant Rock anymore. Well, it eventually will get like that. Um, Is that inevitable? Yeah, it's been, you know, we have the local groups that are working on it, and one of the things that the Historical Society has taken on is making um, Highway 227, um, 247, it's the the main highway that takes you out to the Integraton and Giant Rock, and and it starts in Yucca Valley and right. will take you all the way out to Lucerne and and Barstow. Right. And uh, there's there's so many incredible, you know, on one of the areas out there is a a creosote bush that's the oldest living thing on Earth, and one of the things that we're fighting right now. And, and again, everybody wants to go green. Everybody wants to go green, but they don't want it in their backyard. They want to put it in the desert. And we have thousands and thousands of acres now of going up of solar panels uh, into these areas and wind turbines that are popping up. And just recently, about three weeks ago, I don't know if you've been out here enough, but we have an area down by Pipes Canyon, not far from the the you know, the Integratron, and um, unknowing to us, there was a group that had been sneaking, I'm going to call it sneaking, because under the radar for over a year, they were, you know, flying in with helicopters and dropping off material, and and they have test um, turbines up there now, testing the ground, and what's planned for next year, if it's approved, they'll be 6,600 square acres of wind turbines going up on these buttes. Um, so those big open spaces you talked about when we first started, yeah. our big open spaces will start to be covered and start to look like Palm Springs and Desert Hot Springs very shortly if we don't fight it. And, and sometimes it's almost a losing battle because, you know, it, California has to go green. And, and for some reason, they don't go green anywhere else but the desert, and they're going to be putting up big transmission lines and, and running them through the desert, and all the energy is going to go out to L.A. and everywhere else, and we're going to have to live with 
looking at wind turbines and transmission lines instead of beautiful sunsets and open big vistas. So, and um, as part of a, a historical society and um, a community group called Homestead Valley Community um, Council, we're working on, and if you want to go to the website, we're, we just got it up, it's um, Highway 240, Scenic Highway 247, and um, we're going to be working to make 247 a scenic byway. And if we can get that through the state, it would help in our, our one of our ways of slowing down this process of, of just putting up all the solar panels and wind turbines <laughs> all out here in our desert and taking away our views and vistas. So it's sad. It's, it's, it's hard for, for many of us to take because, you know, you know, you remember areas that, you know, I don't know if you remember Palm Springs when you used to be able to go there and none of those wind turbines were there. And um, so, you know, that's a whole different, I guess that's a whole different um, subject completely. Yeah. But, um, but it, it would be sad to see when you're flying or coming out here to have a, a desert experience that you were looking at transmission lines and wind turbines on well, the hills. So. Yeah, well, as long as it's along places that most people don't go, I guess they don't really care. And then it, it doesn't really affect them personally. Uh, but yeah. the other side of it is what gets the most wind and the most uh, sun is those areas. Yes. So I don't know what the solution to that is. I certainly don't want the desert covered with with uh, wind turbines, blacktops, and, and, and uh, solar panels. But yeah. I, I don't know what the solution is besides, you know, going even further away or messing up somebody else's desert or nuclear power. Yeah. You know? I really think at some point, I think people would, you know, because Southern California, we all have, we have enough sun. And just having it built into our own houses, you know, right now they or, have roofing yeah. tiles that are solar panels. And and we're actually, in our, our property, we have about three acres of land here that we've been contacted by a program that would put up um, small wind turbines on our roof and or else put one wind turbine on the side and it would be uh, enough for our house. So... Maybe instead of, you know, big wind turbine farms, you know, and, and having to do and feed a whole city, that each person maybe somehow be responsible for their own, you know, energy needs. But, you know, again, that's all politics. And and for me, I just, I, I've come to appreciate the desert and the people that live here very much because the stories, oh my gosh, if... I, I met a man at one of these potlucks that I went to. Mm -hmm. that he must be late 90s, but he actually flew and flew into Giant Rock Airport when Frank Kreitzer knew it and, and was working there. So he, he's an old guy, and, and he validated, he was able to validate for me that the they were told not to come all the way into the White Rock. They were told to go off to the side, you know, group of rocks onto the side. And he says, oh, yeah, he says, we never went all the way in. And, and it was very not very often that 
that um, Frank had them go to the big giant rock. That, so it, it's really nice to actually sit with the old timers and get their stories. Like I even, you know, Dan, Dan and his story, he, he just passed away a few years ago. So as part of the historical society, we were able to document his experiences and what he was, you know, he got to do and live at, at Giant Rock. And um, there's, there, there's so many good memories when you talk to the people out here. Yeah. They, they tell you there's one thing that they all seem to have in common, and they want to preserve it. They, people rarely want to see it blown up, taken away, destroyed, even though there's outsiders that come from the other area that have have a lot of good times um, blowing it up, writing and graffitiing all over it. Um, one, one lady came from L.A. one time and painted the rock pink, and it was in, it was in the, uh, yes, it was in the L.A. time, and she was talking about how the rock is crying and it's just hurting and and it was her interpretation of the rock hurting and the people the around here were very insulted by having that happen they well yeah well i would like, be too yeah it's like why why are you coming out here and painting our rock pink go to your own home and paint your rock pink you know uh, the other thing that happens out here is people come and they dump garbage I mean, we're constantly cleaning up garbage, old tires, refrigerators, I mean, junk. And and I've gone out there and I talk to people and I'll, and I'll ask them, I, you know, like, why are you doing this? And, you know, take your garbage and there's a dump down the road. And, you know, a lot of the response is, is shocking because they don't live in the area. So they'll tell me stuff like, well, we don't live here, so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so it's just... For me, it's become a, a message of education, and, and if I can share my passion for the history, the love of um, the Van Tassel story, the Integratron story, the Giant Rock story, I, I want to share it. I want people to know how it has progressed over history, and, and I would love for it to continue. And, and have people bringing their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren there. So, yeah, it's, it's a fun place. It, it is a very, very different place to go to. And, and when you go out there, there's times that you go up onto the top of the hill. Crystal Hill, that's some place I didn't tell you about, huh? No, we didn't um, get into that one. Crystal Hill, that was the hill that sat behind Giant Rock. It's still there. Yeah, but I have pictures of it in the 50s or the 40s before it was destroyed. Um, where there was a time where the, the crystal, the quartz stuck out so far out of the top of it, it, it stuck out out of something like you see out of a Superman movie. And people were actually carved chairs where you can sit out of the, the, the quartz that was up there. And over time, you can see it how it whittled away and whittled away and and once we started bringing people out there and showing them more and more of it people were coming out and they were ripping at large chunks of the mountains and and now you go up there and and you don't have the same large chunks anymore they're just little little pieces yeah and, well uh, i've gone up there and, and i haven't seen any of that them. hill 
sometimes and the wind blows in your face and the moon the sun is setting on one side and the moon is setting on the other and and you really can feel the energy you feel it and and one of the the interesting uh, adventures I've had is taking tours or taking people up that hill and you get them to the top of the hill and it could be in the middle of the day it could be 110 degrees and I can't get them down <laughs> they, it, it's it's almost like hypnotic and there's something about that particular quartz hill that really it it, it vibrates and in the with the wind blowing up there it's it's a very um kind of spiritual space and people really enjoy that that part of the tour and a trip so next time you come we'll take you up there i'd like so. to go yeah I've, I've been there i think once or twice and i said i don't really see any quartz here even though it's called quartz hill so i wandered around it a bit and then uh went back to the rock yeah See, now you had the same experience I had when they told us about it. We um, talked about, we stood at the bottom, and they said, where is this quartz hill? Where is this quartz thing? I never, you know, we were just, you know, kind of bitching them up about it. And then all of a sudden, we looked down and saw the hill, and we go, the whole hill is solid quartz. If you start walking up to the top, you got, it's solid. And um, so it, it's fascinating because it's the only thing in the area that is this little mound of white quartz, and um, it doesn't have anything else in the area that looks like it. It's supposedly where George had some of his first contacts. And when we know about quartz today, we know that quartz is used in our computers, and we know it's used in transmission. So. It seems very logical that it would be a, a place of transmission. It would be a place where you could receive um, messages. And um, it, it, I would I would venture to say that it's very likely that sitting up there, and I, I've, I've watched people, I've watched people go into different altered states <clears throat> with, um, with just sitting up there and, and having some amazing experiences. Um, so next time, we'll take you up there at night. You'll really like that one. <laughs> yeah, I would like it, although it's getting harder to get out there because the roads are so beaten up from people off-roading on them. I remember when they used to be nice and smooth. Yeah, and they used to be maintained by the, you know, by the county, and, and uh, they're not anymore. Uh, and the other thing, that, though, that has been helping with education is with the OHVers and the off-roaders, yeah. We have code enforcement now. So if you catch somebody in the act of spray painting that rock and you call it in, they will come out there and arrest them. Uh, they, they're very much on it, and, uh, and it's, gotten, it's gotten better, but it's still a long process. <laughs> and there, there's only two code enforcement. There's two, two guys or two sheriffs that... That run it or take care of it, and um, they're like running a whole county, half of a county. Yeah. Because they run from like Landers to Barstow. So, you know, they do what they can, but the educational aspects of teaching about giant rock, sharing the history, it seems to be working. It seems to be less damaging. And once a year, there's a, 
there's a really big cleanup. It's always the first, oh God, I'm not going to get that right, the first weekend of March or the first weekend after East, after spring. Uh-huh. Um, but, um, I, you know, I'll, I'll keep that on Facebook. Yeah, please please and, announce uh, it next time. Know. But they do a big cleanup, and we come out, and the BLM will come out, and they'll they'll um, uh, spray and take away some of the you know graffiti, and and we we pick up we pick up tons of nails, and they'll t- they they take it to the dump, and it, it's a it's a big thing. And then our local groups that do it on a regular basis. And every time we go out there, people take garbage bags and and try to keep it clean. Now, so exciting! Are there any I other questions so. I could ask for you? Anything you have an interest in? Uh, I had a couple other questions. One: Did people move out to Landers just to be near Van Tassel and the Integratron and Giant Rock? Did did the population of Landers increase when he was out there just because of his presence? From the the material I've read, no, I, I wouldn't say that it, it increased because of Van Tassel. Um, I still think that Van Tassel was pretty much off the radar. I I don't think people were moving to Landers. And what always has surprised me that in you know we we were catching up steam with our consciousness. You know, you figure the sixties. And, and people were getting aware of UFOs and paranormal, you know, and, and just getting the opening of their, their minds to other possibilities. And, and it went and it goes into the seventies and you get into the middle of the seventies and especially out here, it just seemed like it quit. And, and what happened and why I even compare that is because at the same time everything was going on with with Van Tassel out of Giant Rock and the Integratron, you have mental physics. And, um, oh, yeah. And, and his, the, I'm, I'm blank now on his name. Um, it's terrible. But he was doing the same thing. There was another whole spiritual movement he was doing. Um, and, and he had, his background came from the guy who built mental physics came from he he had a pub he was a publisher and he walked across Tibet to the China to Tibet and he mapped that out. Um, and to this day, China actually has contacted the mental physics um, community because the stuff that and I blank I cannot this is so embarrassing, I can't remember his name, um, that he documented they don't even have documented in their own museums and files in China. So they were offering and they were opening up to share some of the information going back and forth. But that that's the, that is the weird part of it because everything was growing, the 60s, the early 70s, and then you got to the mid-70s and it just stopped. And again, maybe it was the recession, maybe the earthquakes, whatever it was, but it seemed like all the spirituality, all the UFO information, and everybody went underground. It all had to be hidden for some reason. You mean out there? That's been always a a fascinating fact that I'm trying to still work on and uncover of why. And and Landers itself, like I said earlier, it was intended to be a, a robust, 
very metropolitan type of city, and that all stopped. Uh, at the historical society, we have the the plans, the building plans, and the city plans that were were all laid out where the hotels and the housing tracks were supposed to be. So, and I think, and I know that Van Tassel knew that. I know he knew that that area was going to grow, and eventually he would have something there. So, again, he was a businessman as well as a spiritual man. And um, but I also know that he, like, I, I'll keep going back. There, there was always this conflict in the community, those who really liked him and those who didn't. So, and I guess that's like with every community. You know, you got, he, he was different, and he was bringing something different to the table, and um, and and I think the government and, and and being so close to a marine base, they felt they had to watch him. Um, because literally, if if he would have achieved what he set out to achieve, I don't I don't know how it would have worked in, in my mind. Because if the Integratron really would have worked, if that that spark or that magnetic energy that would build up would be so powerful and so loud that um, I don't know how people could have been close to it. I don't know, you know, how he had that worked out. It would have been interesting and wonderful to see how it would have worked. I don't know if he had it worked out, although people might not know what the Integratron was. They look at it and it looks like an observatory or something. Most people don't know that it was designed as a machine. Yes. Yeah, and it was designed actually to, well, there, there's two different theories behind this, because the th- one theory is, is was to rejuvenate the human body, and the other theory that right. comes from it, that it was actually a time machine. And in its process, and when you look at the actual actual data of how it was designed and what it was all about, you think of the Philadelphia experiment, and, and if it would really have worked, I, I, I really think that, that the thing would have been so ear-piercing, loud, and it would have built up so much energy. Who knows? I, it, you know, we, we still sit on the couches and look at it and go, wouldn't it be something if it was a time machine, you know, and it actually was something that would be transporting you? But, um, you know, today, what they do with it and then how the girls work with the, the Integratron is through the sound bath. And that's a whole different experience because although the technology has changed from the 50s to now, and if they turned it on, they would probably use different technology nowadays. But the technology that the girls use with the crystal bowls in the upper chamber, because most people don't know there's an upper chamber and a lower chamber. And there's these rods around the end, and they're called die rods. And these die rods were intended to spin and spin on a bed of air very, very fast until it created an electromagnetic field. And if you can imagine, you know, just getting, you know, the Santa Ana winds or something when you get a little zip, Zip, this would be a big zip zip, and it, it would create a spark that would go into the the upper part of the dome, 
work its way through copper coils down into the bottom. And so you would have a, a negative and a positive charge, a, a positive upstairs and negative downstairs. And um, you wouldn't be able, if you went upstairs while the, while the machine was on, you'd probably, you would fry. <laughs> and the bottom part was intended for people never to really just sit there and sit in the field. Yeah, it's supposed to walk, to walk through it. walk one door and walk out the other. And through that process of walking through the magnetic field, their bodies would, you know, heal. And um, the girls today, they take people to the upper chamber and they play crystal sound bowls. And what happens is, is the sound resonates there's a whole big technical stuff to the whole process of It's a parabolic bowls, reflector. It does resonate through the wooden floors, and the people laying on the floors, they they tend to relax and go into a, an alpha state and um, get to experience something um, very unique. And, and many people have told them that the, actually the Integratron is turned on by by what they're doing and how they do it, that it's doing the same intentions that George had intended it to do. So, have you ever had a sound bath? No, I haven't had one there. I've, it, it, in fact, they haven't offered me, and I haven't offered to to take one, although I do like going into the Integratron. I mean, I wrote about it and heard about it for years and years and years and years. And then the mm-hmm. first time I went there, um, I think Joanne met me and I said, oh, I'm writing a book and I've been coming out here for years. And she just let me go sit in there by myself, with <laughs> unsupervised, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, and I, that book, you, you are um, very popular out here with your book. And um, I'm glad to announce that you'll be coming out to the our High Desert Nature Museum to be speaking um, about about Weird California and some of your background in that. Um, people out here, it's so funny because for me, um, I, they're always pulling out, everywhere I go, somebody's pulling out your book and showing it to me and, and, and trying to tell me all the stories that you have written in it. So it's, I'm, I'm very grateful as part of the Historical Society. Um, you're going to validate and bring some stories and and some neat history and share some stories that people might not know about and uh i hope so i mean i'm gonna have to talk to you before i come out there to make sure they haven't heard about some of the stuff i don't know i'm going to make a special presentation that i haven't made before which i try to do for every lecture but um especially in this case because i love the area and the people and the history there which is um why we ended up talking uh, in the first place, when I, uh, how did we meet? Oh, Retro UFO, the first one. Yeah, the Retro UFO, the very first one, and and it just continued, and we keep having, there's a lot of the same interest, and, and this particular area, it just draws you in, like I said, and, but it's, and, and if people are interested, too, the Historical Society, we've just um, remodeled, and Bob Benson, I don't know if you met this man, but Bob worked yes, with I met George Bob. on the, the original Integratron. Yes, I owe and him a copy of a Van Tassel book. Society, and he's just built us a, a six-foot model of the Integratron. Wow. So uh, we, uh, we also are doing demonstrations and small tours for people if they're interested in, in just showing up. At the Historical Society on Tuesdays, we're open on Tuesdays and by appointment, and uh, 
they can come out and Bob does a little demonstration. We have other things on the property that are kind of cool. We have General, one of the trucks General Patton used out here, and General Patton was famous out here in the desert because he would use his maneuvers and do his stuff, and then when the, the trucks broke down from dust and dirt and anything, he just left them. So um, some of the the local people, the homesteaders out here, they would go and get the trucks, fix them, bring them back. And this one particular truck we have on the property, it was used to to pave quite a few of the roads, or I don't call pave, grade the roads out here. And um, and then we had we have things such as the first post office of Landers, which is probably the size of a uh, you know, 10 by 10 room, um, and and many, many interesting little things going on for a little museum on middle of Landers. And, and usually what we like to do is if you come out and make arrangements to get you a sound bath over at the Integratron. So we like to combine combine our efforts. And uh, I'd like you to come out and, and bring some friends and and definitely take you over for a sound bath and a tour and and take you to see take you to see the the part of Giant Rock and the Integratron and the area that that I know and uh, and you know, I would it's love not it. the typical you know run of the mill map tour. It's taking you to some secret spots and some different areas that are kind of different and uh, have some have some unique energy behind them. So, is there a so that, uh, is there a quick and easy way for people to look all this up the the um, the uh, historical society uh, website etc. Yeah, right now we're um, we're going to be in the process of updating it because we have our annual meeting in September. But you can always go to um, the mbhs dot net and uh, and check out what's going on there now. There we're going to be updating this week uh, on some and get this and to, to join if you're interested. You know, it's really a cheap join, twenty dollars an individual. And one of the things that we're doing in October, October 6th, we're taking a group of our members to the Marine Base. We're actually, we've, we've been invited to the Marine Base. 35 people get to go. And we're going to be going out to Combat City. The, it's the 1,500 um, buildings where they practice their maneuvers like they do in Afghanistan. And we're going to get to go in, a chance to go into the simulators and, you know, crawl into the tanks and all the different Humvees and different stuff they have there. And on the lighter side, it's going to be a very long day. And um, we're also going to be going over to the tortoise re- reserves and the, the gun range. And, and you get to go have this. For all of four dollars and twenty five cents, <laughs> which will be your food at the at the neatest cafeteria that you'll ever see on a marine base, man, they they serve really good food. So, and and that's the cost. And we and we can beg them not to the, take over Giant Rock. People out, there will be members. Um, so you know, we will offer it to our members, and then um, after that than anybody else can fill up. But if you want to join, you know, and come on out on a Thursday, October 6th, take 
skip work that day and come on out. And it's an, it'll be an experience. It really. We did it in April, and one of the things we didn't take into account is, as a historical society, many of our our um, group are elderly or more mature, and our day was really cut short because they there were different you know physical attributes that people had and the younger people on the tour didn't get a chance to do the things we really wanted to do like play in the simulator get out in the you know where they're they're, they're training get out of the gun range and you know do the do the fun stuff physical stuff so um when i contacted the base and they immediately they set up another tour and but all we ask for this tour is people be physically fit to be able to walk. You know, it, it has a moderate level of um, physical challenges you need to maintain. So but they take you. You go out there. You're approved. And we walk through the gate at eight o'clock, nine o'clock. We're on a bus, and they just it, it's a fabulous tour. So I'll help you come out. Come and enjoy it. So, and we do a lot of different uh, field trips. We go to Old Woman Springs and, and you know, Kelso Sand Dunes and Harvey House and Barstow. And and uh, we keep all those field trips for the members very, very, you know, reasonable and, and easy for everybody to do and get to. We do all kinds of programs and stuff, too. You don't have to live in, live in the desert to be part of it, so... No, I well, I want to be part of it. I'll join check up. Out at, you know, I wanted people to be, be able to know how to get involved and to uh, experience that part of California and that part of the desert that not too many people know about. And even if you do have some interest, you know, in UFOs or George Van Tassel, there's so much else going out. There's so much, so many other things going on. Hey, when you go out to the Marine base, you can beg them not to take over Giant Rock. Yeah, that's part of the program, (laughs) the open communication, they let us know what's going on, we let them know, and and that's how we've been able to deal with it, is through the communication and being involved, they've been very involved in, in, you know, making us accept them in the community, and um, so, you know, and, and it's really a fun thing to do. Um, and you get to see from the other side. And it's funny because when you're out there and you're looking at giant rock from the, the back side, it, yeah. you know, it feels freaky. So, so, you know, you don't normally get that opportunity. So I, I, I enjoy that very much. And, and we really like that being part of the Marine base out here. They're our neighbors. And, and it's very important that we all get along and we try to work this deal out where the land is just going to be taken up. And uh, we're just trying to learn and work to share and do what's best for the people involved and the environment. And and um, we all need to compromise. Just walk on in. We're open from 10.30 to 3 on Tuesdays. And so there's, you know, there's somebody there to, to show you the working model of the Integratron and give you some back history, you get to look at photos and things. You also get to sit in the media room and, and look at old Van Tassel um, movies and and different things the historical society has done. I think one of the most popular um, 
DVDs on Amazon right now is a George Van Tassel. Well, in relation to um, the Integratron, is a George Van Tassel DVD made by um, uh, Jane and Jared Poyala, and, and it involved the, the Historical Society and um, a man named Lloyd Noel, and he. Oh, this was this is cool. You met him. He he played George. He, oh yeah, yeah. He dressed up by George, and knew the history of Giant Rock and and the Integratron, and he would answer people's questions. And he was very articulate at it, and and he kind of looked at like, well, he didn't look like George, but he had you know he was a more mature man. He wore glasses. He had a little sweater on, and and I remember the first. The first retro, it was so funny. He had everybody, it's like he channeled George. And <laughs> everybody in the audience, they were asking him questions and all kinds of stuff. And people really got into it. They really thought he was George Van Tassel. And I'll never forget this one little lady. She was outside. And, and eventually she caught on and heard us talking to Lloyd and, and came over and was really appalled and very upset that we were pulling the wool over her eyes and having him, <laughs> you know, portray George Van Tassel because, you know, she thought he really was George Van Tassel. So, um, you know, like I said, the Historical Society and my own personal research, um, we've collected a lot of, although I recently I've collected books from some of the contactees that spoke out at um, Giant Rock. And... Um, and they're very interesting because they were publications before they were publications. They're, they're like the first written little books, and and they're not even in covers and and um, just some neat little things that we just like to show off at the um, at the historical society and at these different presentations that we have. But um, um, Robert Short actually just wrote a new um, uh, commemorative uh, thing for Giant Rock. Yes, I heard. In it, he lists a lot and goes into the contactees and a lot of their background. So, but the sad thing is, is he still, he, he got caught up too and didn't get the latest information, so he still is reporting that Frank Kreitzer was a German immigrant that came to Giant Rock to cure his lung disease. <laughs> so so now you all know the truth. The truth is out there that Frank Kreitzer is an American citizen, so never born, and, and he's actually English, not German. <laughs> a lot of myth-busting, which I promised on the website, uh, that I, I put up the announcement that you're going to be on this afternoon. Um, Thank you. Keep in touch with me, okay, Greg? <laughs> I will. I was just looking. I have recordings of George Van Tassel. Do you have those out there at the Integratron? I'm sure you do. Yeah, they do. They have quite a few of them. And um, have okay, you good. to any of them, to the, his channelings and yes. the recordings? Yes, I have. I've even got recordings of him on a, a couple of radio shows from the 1950s. So. You know, we kind of laugh because they're they're a little difficult. <laughs> and I, there's one I have in particular when I when I need a good laugh, I I play it. I keep it on my computer because it always starts up like, you know, pounding on the microphone. Hello, hello, can I hear me? Can you hear me now? 
know, yeah. it's just, it, yeah, it's he, he does the uh, switching yeah. channels thing. And there, you know, and you, you got to think of the technology at the time. And, um, and, and also too, the girls uh, are collecting and they've, they've created more of a library of, of the history of the Integratron. And in the same process, the historical society is, is also collecting. So people have information they would like to share that they would like to contribute or have for us to put on display, um, we would be extremely grateful. It's, um, it always surprises me what comes out of the woodwork. Um, and you never know. You just never know. There's, there's a, might be, we, I've seen it happen so many times where just some little old lady walks onto the, onto the property and goes, you know, I have, I've had these in my garage since the 1960s. Do you want some? Yeah. And, and there's been many times I pick stuff out of, out of garbage bins, um, people throwing historic stuff away. So, um, I guess another man's, you know, junk is another man's treasure. So, um, I'm always into the historical stuff though. Love it. Love it. Love this area for its history and learn more and more about it every day and love to share it with people. Have well, such a passion for it. It sounds like it and so do I and I'm so glad you you agreed to come on the show, especially on um with such uh little sleep but nobody could tell. Oh but it's halfway interesting. It's interesting to me, and that's all that counts. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm glad. Have you talked to Adam lately? Uh, yeah, I talked to him quite. In fact, he was messaging me during the show and saying, Great show, my God, I didn't know Barbara was going to be on. <laughs> yeah, he's another one. He, uh, we we keep emailing, saying, Let's get in touch. Let's, let's work on this. Let's work on this project. But we just never get together. Well, and, you know uh, what? I, and again, you know, you're a great group of guys. You all changed my life with retro. You really did. And you all are very just special in my life. I don't know how or what, but it seems like you came to that area and it's what I really needed at that time. And again, the vortex pulls them all in. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, thank really you was. so much, Barbara. No, but I get a what? I just get a chance to ramble on about my passion for two hours or two and a half hours. So yes. I love that. Thank you. I did too. Thanks so much, Barbara. And I'll, I will very definitely talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, Barbara Harris, who's the uh, president of the Morongo Basin Historical Society. We've been talking about the history of the... Uh, High desert out there uh, near Landers, which not too many people know, and Giant Rock Joshua Tree National Park, which most people do know. But there's a whole hidden history out there of uh, of characters and and eccentrics and visionaries, etc., that has fascinated me for years. And now I finally found somebody out there that's uh, just as interested as I I am from a slightly different perspective. Brady Mysterioso will be back next week. We have Nick Redfern on again. We're going to talk about uh, his book, Men in Black, The Real Men in Black, um, which has been out for a few months. But uh, I bet I will ask questions of Nick nobody else has, and we'll have a uh, conversation like we always do. 
Thanks for listening. Radio Mysterioso, uh, 8 to 10 p.m. every Sunday here on killradio.org. How about a demo of Skyman? I wonder if that one's working. Going along with the uh, theme of the show. Wow, this is a real rough version of it. Thanks for listening.